0: Hello friends and listeners and welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today is March the 27th and this is episode number 5 of season 8. And when I say that, I think it's amazing how time flies. We have already passed a quarter of the new year and we are already into the fifth episode of this new season. It seems like it almost just started. Well, well, that's how time flies, and I hope you're doing well. Thank you for joining us again, and uh, thanks to all of you who are here for the first time to listen to this episode in which my guest today will be Eric Perdue, and we are going to talk about him as a magician, as an astrologer, and mainly also about that wonderful job he has accomplished recently uh, with the translation of the whole three books of uh, Occult Philosophy by Agrippa. Uh, long overdue new translation and uh, we talk a lot about that, of course, as well. So Eric is my guest here today. I would like to thank uh, all of you who are returning customers. And um, I am sure even you who are returning customers might not have heard all the 120-ish episodes that there are. And you can find them all on the website, thoughtshermes.com, scom And there on the website you find, of course, the show notes. That's always interesting. Only just recently somebody asked me, on, on a YouTube listener asked me, uh, wrote a note, well, where can I find the music or what is the music that you played in this and this episode? And said, well go to the website and you will find out and uh, he or she i don't remember said oh yes thank you well that's to all of you. Go to the website, find out about the details of those episodes and find all the episodes there. And while you're there, send me also a message. Let me know how you like those episodes. Let me know how you like the show and what you would like to hear next or maybe if you have suggestions other than just inviting guests or... Well, another call for music is due because I haven't had some music from you in the recent weeks, so... For a while, we had every week music from one of our listeners, and at the moment there is a bit less activity. Well, maybe you didn't have time, but if you just forgot, do send me your music. I'd love to play it on this show. There is another request I have. Of course, you know it. Yes, please become a patron of the show. Uh, again two more members have joined and i'm very grateful and thanks to all of you who are already patrons and who have been helping to make this podcast sustainable for the last years um we need more of you honestly we need more of you you see it's uh, life is not becoming cheaper so services on the internet are neither um yes please become a patron and support this show and um I would like also to point out that in a few weeks it will be, well, roughly roughly four weeks, not even. And this will be the fifth anniversary of the Thought Hermes podcast. And we'll go to have a very special episode on that day that already I can say as much. And I'll announce to you rather exciting news a few days before that anniversary uh, about the new product that i'm gonna launch for you so stay tuned and do not forget to become a patron on the patreon site with todd hermes podcast or as i said on the website go there and click on the patreon button become a patron thank you so much for doing that Some of you say I chat too much as the intro. Okay, just to remind you, those who want to jump over my chatting or over the music or whatever, you have those chapter marks. Don't forget them. Chapter marks, which you can use in most podcast players nowadays. And um, so that brings you directly to a musical piece or to the beginning of the interview or to the beginning of the second part of the interview or also to the outro. Do not forget to listen to the outro because that's when i announce the next week episodes and its guest. so but i must say one thing i am chatting again but i have to say that i'm very very happy that 78 percent of you listeners here on the podcast not those on youtube but that's a different matter because youtube is just a different media but all the others, non YouTubers, 78% of you listen to 75% or more of the show. So, including everything, including my chat and the music and everything, over 75%. And it's 78% of you who do that. And that's huge. I am very happy, very proud of that. Of you, my listeners, I'm very proud. So thank you for that. So, Some music. It's time for some music. Well, the music I chose for this show is very special. Um, I just love it. I just love it. It's sacred songs. It's Christian songs. But that's not the reason why I chose it, of course. It is the sound, which is just extraordinary. It's an ensemble from Corsica, from the island of Corsica. Uh, The ensemble is called Tempus Fugit. And this recording was made about 20 years ago. It made... Uh, a sensation it caused a sensation in Calvi at the Festival of Polyphony then back then in 2002 and they have this group of five male voices they have an extraordinary technique and vocal technique uh, repertoire which is from the 16th century in which it doesn't fit entirely but a little bit the time of Agrippa and this music comes from the Nebu region in Corsica And it is Prayers for the Holy Week. It is a 16th century processional song and excerpts from a mass that you can find on that CD. And I'm going to play you uh, several tracks, altogether six tracks. They are partly short tracks. That's why I put several together and... um, that's the music you're going to hear today. So let's jump into that right away. The first uh, two tracks that you're going to hear are called, well, for those of you who know the Holy Mass, you know what it is. Veni Sancte Spiritus, it's called. It's Come Holy Spirit and Lorme Sanguinea. I can't translate that completely, I must say. Um, in the course language, um, uh, but in Latin, of course, but with the Corson and sound and, and hard to describe. You have to listen to it. It's harmonized in an extraordinary way, very, very, going very deep into your body when you listen to that music. So without further ado, listen to Tempus Fugit and their sacred songs, Veni Sancti Spiritus and Lorme Sanguine. I hope you like it because you're going to hear more of it later in the show. Enjoy. De Spiritus and Lorme Sanguine, sung by five gentlemen from Corsica. Tempus Fugit is the name of the group, and they do sacred songs uh, from the 16th century. And I think their sound is quite extraordinary. I've rarely heard a thing like that. I hope you enjoyed. They're gonna be more, as I said, later in the show. So now let's go to meet Eric, Eric Perdue, who has translated very recently. Well, good thing to say, he was at work for 11 years. No wonder. It's a huge task. He took Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, Agrippa's books, three books on occult philosophy. He translated in this new English translation, which was really overdue. And uh, I can tell you it's not only. A great translation. It's a beautiful, no, three beautiful books because of course it's the three books of occult philosophy, very, um, very very nicely presented um, in 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 that in a very nice bound uh, matter, and um, by inner traditions and you can get it there. I will post that on the show notes. Um, what i would like to read you today is apart from the translator's introduction of course it makes sense i'm not going to read you agrippa's texts but some remarks that eric did um would be too long to read them all because he uh, he goes quite in depth about this necessity of a new translation i might only take the the the, headl- the headers of those um six reasons why he thought there was a necessity of a new translation and read a bit more about the background of it. So, let me cite a few lines from Eric's introduction to his translation. The necessity of a new translation. All prior English editions of the three books are based on the 6051 JF translation. This translation has served as a basis, as mentioned above, for many sources and spiritual practices, particularly over the past two centuries. After beginning a fresh translation from the original Latin, some interesting highlights began to appear. Mistranslations, lack of technical knowledge, animal and botanical names that were wrong or old-fashioned. The archaic English is sometimes distracting or misleading. Some graphics are incorrect. And all of these have compounded errors in later editions. So, As I said, those six points, I didn't read the full chapters, but just the headlines. And then Eric goes on, most importantly, the primary purpose of creating a new authoritative edition of Agrippa's three books is to take a fresh look at the original Latin. The secondary purpose was to obtain and cross-reference as many of Agrippa's sources as possible. Tyson attempted this in his 1993 edition, but he often favored sources that Agrippa either could not have read, because they were not available in his time, sources that Agrippa simply would not have used, or sources that did not exist during Agrippa's lifetime. Our translation attempts as much as possible to cite sources that were available to Agrippa. This has allowed us to largely reconstruct Agrippa's library and has demystified his method of obtaining it. This shows that Agrippa, rather than writing from texts now missing or obtaining books from secret sources, instead was a mainstream scholar of his day, using texts widely available. These are noted in our translation. In a few cases, identification of Agrippa's sources has shown some transcription errors on his part. These are noted as well. Three books, while seemingly a reference text with standalone chapters upon discrete subjects, is actually intended to be read from beginning to end. It is structured to build upon itself brick by brick as a Unified Programmer's Study. The rest is divided into three large sections, these being the titular three books. Book one is about the natural world, book two is on the celestial world, and book three addresses the divine world. These are the three primary parts of magic in Agrippa's conception of the subject, corresponding to the three parts of man and universe. So I hope I made you curious about those three books because um, they're really worth it. And now we are going to go and meet Eric Perdue at home in the United States and have a wonderful talk and discussion with him on Agrippa and on many other matters. Enjoy!
1: Here comes the interview.
0: I am very happy to welcome here on the Soth Hermes podcast, somebody who has been, uh, well, uh, very remarked in occult circles lately because he has finished, I believe it was a 10 year work uh, from what I read 11 years. Wow. (laughs) Um, A translation work of um, Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy. And uh, we are going to talk about that a lot here today, but about other things as well. And I'm very pleased to welcome Eric Perdue here tonight on the show. Hello, Eric. How are you today? Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, of course, um, I'm. I'm really glad we can do that. It's not the first interview that you do on that topic, but um, there is so much to be said about that, and uh, I'm. I'm really. I'm. I'm really happy that we can speak. And as probably most of people who are listening in here expect now, because they know me a little bit, we are not only going to talk about that book. Well, actually, it's three books, um, but we are also going to talk about. You, Eric, your background and what brought you there to 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 trans to do such an eleven year work, uh, incredible work. Um, <laughs> so, Eric, magic, astrology, occultism, I believe, from what I know about you, you're a modest person. you're not so in the limelight like other occultists, but um from what I know,
1: uh, has been part of your life um, for quite some time, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been since I was a teenager. Yeah. I think like a lot of people though like many people some say they started at age
0: five um but i think most <laughs> of them are, it's rather at 18 so. but how how did it all start how how did you get into that how did you discover that world and how did you get interested and involved in it
1: uh, well i mean of course the seeds were always i guess when you're five right <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably most of us yeah. were, were strange five-year-olds i guess yes um i mean so i was i was always interested in uh mythology uh and that sort of thing and when when i was in high school i started you know really being aware that there there was more out there um you know i bought the satanic bible i I didn't buy it i somehow acquired it maybe it was satan i'm not sure how (laughs) he um you know he had a ouija board and all that kind of thing um but when i was when i moved out on my own i started you know, I, I was in Chicago and there was a really good occult bookstore there. Called the Occult Bookstore. It's still around. Mm-hmm. And they uh so I just bought the kinds of things that people tend to buy when they don't know anything. Um, I bought uh, you know, Starhawk, um, you know, the Wiccan book. And yeah. um, she was popular back then. And um One of, it was Crowley's uh, Magic Without Tears. And I bought some book on the Golden Dawn. I don't know what book it was. And uh, I lost it over the years. Uh, But I read it and I was, that's what I was looking for. I was looking for, you know, wanted to have some sort of, you know, really spooky experience with, you know, this ceremonial magical order. It sounded really intriguing Mm -hmm. and um, didn't understand any of it. and. I was, I was a musician back then and uh, this person I was playing with said, well, I know this person who's really serious. When you join their temple, you have to shave their head. (laughs) You have to shave your head. Okay. And, um, they make all the, all of their own magical implements and all of this. I try, you know, this is all exaggerated. I found (laughs) out later, but it sounded really interesting and, um, wasn't sure about shaving my head. (laughs) and um, (laughs) anyway so he gave me this guy's number It had a really exotic I've told the story on other interviews but it it sounds funny but I um, it it was an exotic sounding name and I said what do I tell this person and they said well you know he's telling me you want to make an appointment and I said I'm like okay (laughs) this is like a drug deal (laughs) so I called the number and this very aristocratic Almost British voice answered the phone and said, hello. And I said, may I speak to Ordoon? That was his name. And I said, he goes, speaking. And I said, I want to make an appointment. And he said, for what? (laughs) I said, look, I have no idea. Um, This person gave me your number. This is what I was supposed to tell you. And he says, okay, well, what are you looking for? And I told him, I I said, look, I know nothing. And He goes, fine, just come on by. So we chatted for hours and hours. He gave me a reading spontaneously. I found out later it was an Afro-Cuban. It's called a De Lagoon reading with shells. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what it was. I thought it was ancient Egyptian. And um, he proceeded to tell me about my life. Things I never told anybody. So I thought to myself that I want whatever he has. (laughs) Um, so I mean, basically he, you know, he, the, my experience with him is that I, I didn't know it was Afro-Cuban at all. I knew nothing about it. He was an artist. Everything was, was designed like he was in, in a ancient Egyptian kick then. Mm -hmm. So there were hieroglyphics all over the walls. He he had a life-size statue of ISIS, which is amazing. Um, and, um, so I, I just figured I was getting myself into an ancient Egyptian, Reconstruction, Reconstructionist religion, yeah. and I found out later on. No, that's not what it was. It was Afro-Cuban. He sort of snuck it on me. By that time, I was, I was hooked. So I was like eighteen, I guess, and you know, I'm this like white guy from Central Illinois, and I don't know anything about any of this. And I suddenly found myself. In the middle of this Afro-Cuban religion,
0: <laughs> interesting,
1: and yeah, but you know, it, it was a, it was an eye opener. I saw a lot of things that you know people typically read about. You know, I, I was introduced to possessions pretty early on. Um, you know, I saw a lot of that, and mm. we did seances and all you know everything, right? And um, it was it was just a it was a kind of a crash course to a very young you know young naive person. And um, I've been doing it ever since. And I I actually started doing astrology because of it, Uh, even though it's not related. Um, When I was eventually initiated in, uh, it's, we we call it leukemia. Most people know it as Santeria. Yeah. Um, Leukemia is kind of the more common term amongst practitioners. Um, I was eventually a a
0: Cuban to Cuban version, right? Leukemia, right?
1: Yeah. It's Afro-Cuban. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lukumi is kind of what they always called themselves. Uh, You know, people say it's Yoruban now, you know, from West Africa. There was no Yoruban back then. It was, uh, that's more of a modern. Mm -hmm. And um, I've heard, people have told me and I've read that, uh, you know, in in that region, they they would often call themselves Lukumi, which means friend. basically, Right. Um, so when I was initiated in that, you know, you get this major life reading that tells you about your future, uh, things you you should watch out for. Um, it gives you, um, things maybe you should try, um, tell it does go into the past sometimes when it's important. And one of the recommendations was to study astrology. Okay. I eventually got into it from there. I didn't know there was any traditional or modern astrology back then. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought that was one thing. So I, I read all the books everybody reads and yeah, thought it was yeah. dumb. <laughs> <laughs> First,
0: <laughs> There is also a term that I must say I'm not familiar with at all, but which I read in context with you, with that Santero practice, uh, which is Olorisha. Um, <laughs> what is that? What does that been? And is that also part of that same tradition?
1: It is. Olarisha means that you're a priest. So Olarisha is basically a Santero. Mm-hmm. I don't like the word Santero personally. Uh, right. Or Santeria personally. Um, a lot of practitioners kind of don't, but we use it because it's convenient. That's mm-hmm. what, that's what everyone knows. Um, but it's kind of a pejorative term. It sounds really- very European, somewhat
0: very Spanish, yeah. Hispanic, Hispanic, right? It's-
1: it is. Uh, there is a well-known Olarisha that I know or we said very well-known Olerisha. And he, he says that Santeria was actually, it predates Lukame. It's, it's an old uh, Catholic term that means um, it, it's basically people who worship saints in a non um, official way. So they, they do Saint magic. That's not approved by the church. So it's like, oh, they don't do Catholicism; they do Santeria, you know. Ugh. <laughs> it's over there. Ah, okay,
0: okay, okay, okay. And, mm-hmm.
1: um, so I, I, I've never really loved the term, but that's what everybody knows. So yeah, yeah,
0: okay. And so it, it was basically through that that you were that you were given the hint for astrology for your life, right? Uh, mm-hmm. If I got you right. And um, so, so how did it start with astrology? Then did you give up
1: on the whole ceremonial magic part, of mm-hmm. that, or? Kind of. I mean, it's, I, 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 when I met my teacher, uh, <laughs> well, the first time I talked to him, I actually brought the books with me and I, the, the conversation literally literally started as, okay, this is all I know. And I handed him the books and he looked at it and he goes, okay. And then he like threw him over to the side. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I just kind of lost interest. I, I, over the years, I, you know, I've come to understand that you know that 19th century, early 20th century lodge magic really does represent it's a snapshot of a certain time. Mm-hmm. And you know, f- quite frankly, you know, a lot's happened in academia since then. And there's a lot of magic and astrology that happened before then that they just simply simply didn't know. And so it's really approach that I mean I, I you know some people do really well with it. Um, but it never really spoke to me after that initial you know, impetus. It got me into it. It was my gateway drug. Uh, but I, I, I kicked the habit pretty quickly. All right. And astrology kind
0: of was maybe I'm a little uh, imprecise when I say that, but um, while the whole magical part was was lost or the whole hermetic part, let's put it that way, was lost for a long time, astrology kind of kept existing throughout the ages, even the middle ages and, and uh, early uh, 16th century, et cetera, um, without being completely lost. And maybe that's also helped to survive in a different way. Or do you see that okay. differently?
1: It's It's very, how do I describe it? Astrology has shifted quite a bit over the over the centuries, and mm-hmm. you know, in, in a very small nutshell, uh, astrology as we know it is formulated by the Hellenist by the Hellenistic. Yeah, I shouldn't say the Greeks because it wasn't they weren't always Greeks. No, you just yeah. Hellenistic yeah, the Hellen- people. Hellenistic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which and, has a lot uh, of other influences than Greek. Yes. <laughs> Greek. <laughs> So I mean because some of it was from Alexandria uh-huh. because Alexandria was that hub. but basically it was th- in the form that we recognize today was from that time. So all of the basic uh, vocabulary was established by then. Yes, it's, it goes back to the ancient Mesopotamians, but that looked different back then. Uh-huh. Um, the ancient Egyptians really didn't seem like they had. Um, astrology as we can think think of it today um so it really is this kind of a it's it came up from that that alexandrian soup Mm -hmm. Uh, mesopotamian greek and egyptian influences all coming together and um so that that you know went on for a while and then when the um when rome fell everything went to the east uh, to um, Constantinople. Mm. It cooked over there for a while. Eventually the Persians, you know, embraced it. The Persians did their thing with it. And then when the Muslims came, uh, there was a major translation push. This is a parallel history to magic, by the way. It's the same history. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and uh, so the the Muslims translated a lot of this material into Arabic. And which is why a lot of it survived, but the Persians really took this and did something unique to it. That, that is, that's what's most fascinating to me. That's the period that, that takes me the most um, because they were basic to them. They were doing Greek astrology. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course it wasn't really that it wasn't really Greek astrology It was, but with a lot of additions to it, yeah. it took in some Indian influences as well. hmm mm-hmm. And, um, and that that form eventually made it over to the European Middle Ages in a truncated format. And that progressed into Europe all the way through the Renaissance. And then during the Enlightenment, um, everything kind of fell into disuse, and it yeah. wasn't it's was pretty quiet for a while. And it was picked up again in the 19th century. in the 19th century, uh, things were, everything changed. The theosophists basically ruined everything. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah. They, they believe that they, they wanted to take away all of the, the fortune telling elements in their words out of astrology. So they took out all of the predictive tools. Um, psychology was, was emerging as a science. It was more mm-hmm. with psychology. So then for a while, for about a century, that's what astrology was. Um, so a lot of the, the kind of internal logic of why astrology is the way that it is was sort of lost and forgotten. And really, over the last 20 years, um, everything has changed. Uh, we've we now have the old texts again in English and uh, translated into English. So we have a, a much better understanding of what people did, mm-hmm. which has never happened. In, I, I mean, we have more material today than I think any practitioner did in any time in history. Which
0: in itself is very positive, but of course, also a danger because as a practitioner, especially as a student, when you start, you have to find your way through a huge number of materials and and you can easily get disoriented, can't you?
1: Yeah, it's it's less of an issue now because so when I started studying traditional astrology, uh, there, there were many people. So there were, I think, I don't know maybe four or five people really teaching it. Mm-hmm. And, and and then it was only one particular branch of astrology. It was horary, which is, yeah, which is a type of astrology that answers specific questions. Um, but natal was kind of not as popular with traditional uh, until more recently. But today, today people are teaching it, you know, of course, social media for good and for good or ill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot out there. Um, there's a lot of web pages. Um, uh, you know, the the books that are translated are hard to get into sometimes, but um, but once you understand, a, get a foundation, you can understand it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there's a lot more resources really, but it's it's hard if you're if you know nothing.
0: Why did you choose traditional astrology? Of course, maybe you can just quickly. I mean, I think most of the listeners here know the difference between uh, traditional and contemporary astrology but maybe it just in two sentences you can give the difference and then tell us why you chose that path rather than than more contemporary versions
1: well i didn't know there was a difference uh, at first and everything that i'd seen with with astrology just seemed really mediocre to me so I, i would see people talk about what was coming up in the next three months and they would say well you know, this is, this is going to be a low energy time. Be careful with your money or mm-hmm. something like that. And um, I, I was used to the divination that we do in Lukumi, which is very, you know, concrete on the money. This is going to happen and it does happen mm-hmm. <laughs> if they know that they're good. Um, I didn't see that with astrology. And I, ironically, when I was reading Agrippa for the first time, I started seeing some terminology I wasn't familiar with okay. and which made me get into research a little bit, a little bit more. And I discovered William Lilly uh, Christian astrology, which I highly recommend for beginners. It's a little tough to get through, but it's, 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 it's underrated in some ways. His natal okay. material is underrated, but it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I was, everything made sense then. And then I was able to see that I could get that those results that i was looking for in the lagoon the leukemia readings through astrology i realized that we didn't have to be mediocre with it and um that i just started me on a whole rabbit hole since then mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but what how would you define the main
0: difference between traditional astrology and well would you call it contemporary or what would you, what would you call the, 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 the other, the other uh, bit? And, and what's the main difference in, in fact,
1: I guess it's all con- contemporary, <laughs> but yeah, sure. Sure. Of course. Today we'll call we'll it modern. International. Today, yes, sure, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. 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 Modern. Yeah. Maybe modern is the better. But we'll call even. it modern to- today. We'll say that. Yeah. Um. Well, it, it, it basically, Traditional astrology is more predictive. It's about finding out what's going to happen and when. And modern astrology tends to be a little bit more psychological, mm-hmm. and or sometimes a little bit wishy-washy. And I, 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 I kind of hate saying this because it's um, today it's becoming a little bit more merged. Because I think young people today are are they don't really have those hangups about the differences mm-hmm. so now that all this material material is available younger people are kind of grabbing whatever and, and making it work um, but when i was starting there was a there was a deep divide and they did not cross mm-hmm. uh, so you definitely had your psychological camp uh, you know the psychological enthusiasts still exist and they do have an issue sometimes with prediction because that's taking away your free will. And um, that's the main issue is that's taking away your free will. Mm-hmm. I wish I don't think it is, but um, and they, they believe that, that they have to give space to people for people to develop their own, I guess, path. And so their, their, their role is to guide people um, to find their own road. And I, I think it's valid for some, for some people. I mean, some people do not want, People telling what's going to happen. <laughs> well, it's, it's easy Sometimes I'm, not to know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's fine. I mean, I'm not. I don't see. I don't. I don't see any of this to be. Um, you know, to to sort of denigrate any person's path. Oh, but, sure, sure. But there, there, it is a different approach. Um, I've I've been. I've had some people uh, not like me saying that astrology is divination, um, because some people don't see it that way. Some people see astrology as a consultory art like therapy is mm-hmm. um so there are there are definitely different opinions but from a traditional standpoint you know you 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 want to know what's going to happen or you have a problem and you want to fix it um you know that sort of thing you know, right. that's that's it has tools for that is is the fact that um
0: only only so to speak seven planets are being used is that also a
1: distinction or is is that not really a distinctional point it's not a true distinction um i know a lot of modern contemporary contemporary <laughs> uh traditional astrologers who use the outer planets mm-hmm. i don't um but in traditional astrology you have specific ways that you do work with the seven planets that you really can't do with the outers very well. So what they tend to do is they use the outers. They'll they'll use the the modern meanings for, for the outer planets and then use them like maybe a fixed star or some, some people use it as a fixed star, which means that a planet has to be conjunct one of those Mm -hmm. for it to matter. Other ones just read it straight and just don't assign rulerships or apply any traditional rules to them necessarily. Um, so it's a it's a matter of preference. I just leave them out because they felt like they were just extra things there, and that just didn't seem like they really did anything for me. So I just don't use them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I had an interesting discussion with John Michael greer
0: very lately on, on that topic why we were discussing pluto of course because he's issued that book on on pluto and and said well uh, what does it change when a planet is no longer a planet because it's still there right it's not it's not become a different object it's like if you say it's now more dangerous to be in San Francisco because a new fault has been discovered well <laughs> it was there before so how, how do you how do you see that point i mean how does the existence of the outer planets um even if you do not take them into account um how do you go around them or do you not have to
1: well there, there, there's a it's a complicated answer um there's several of them so you one reason is <laughs> yeah so i guess one consideration is what makes you know what makes it, Something in the sky notable Mm -hmm. to us, and is it the fact that it's there or the fact that we can see it? That's one answer. Exactly. So, some people have um, said that it's because there's light. So, if we can see it, there's light hitting it. We, you know, it's visual, it's visible to us. There's a lot of things out in this in space that we can't see. Um, We we don't use the moons of the of the planets. We don't use satellites. Yeah. Um, some people do use asteroids. Um, no one that I know uses all of them. Um, so there's a lot of debris out there <laughs> that, that, you know, that we could use or not use. So you have to mm-hmm. make a distinction at some point, right? All of us have to make a distinction. I think. Yeah. Um, and one of the problems I have with the outers is that, um, some of this is, is conjecture, but I think it's educated conjecture. Um, we, we don't know exactly why the inner planets were named what they were for Mm -hmm. sure. And I, in in the modern era, we imagine this sort of scientific, you know, reasoning where we sit there and we take, you know, meticulous notes and everything and we compare it. And then we do trials and all this kind of thing. And that didn't happen in the ancient world. The, the, The Babylonians did make notes and they made a lot of notes. Okay. Some of it probably did come from that. But some of it is just, it's just plain logic. I mean, the Mercury, the planet is moves, is the fastest moving planet and it, and it, and it changes its direction the most. Yeah. So it's unpredictable. You know, quote, unpredictable. So it's like Mercury, the God or Hermes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Saturn is the slowest planet and the dimmest. You know, it's old age, that kind of thing. Some of this is just logic, I think, but with the outer planets um, that, that didn't happen. So they, they, were first of all named by astronomers who really did not care about their magical significance. Yeah. Um, so it was random. They were just trying to keep in, you know, keep pace with the, or keep the, the trend of the Greek or Roman God names. And, um, and then, and then astrologers came in and said, Oh, it's, Oh, it's Pluto. Okay. Well, what is Pluto and myth? And they start kind of merging all of this together. Plus what happened in history at the time it was discovered. That's the other, the other consideration which tends to favor Western history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't really tend to pay attention to other parts of the world. So the whole thing just seems, I just, it's enough doubt in my mind to really take it too seriously. Mm -hmm. But at the stage, I mean, all, all of the outer planets have been used now for, I mean, at least in Pluto's case since the thirties, but I mean, so so now a few generations uh, or decade or um, centuries in a couple of cases. Anyway, there's now a, a, a practice built up. So now people just kind of rely on it. Right. And use it and say that it works. And that's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I don't know. I need more than that. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> but, but your, your arguments
0: sound, or your arguments sound very sound and clear to me, actually. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, uh, to be honest, of course, in my practice of magic, you have to have one of the tools for it is astrology. But I'm not, I'm not really, good at it if you have to put it like that but by instinct i by instinct i also always work in in the traditional way and i'm not uh but in, in, i couldn't argue it you i'm very happy you gave those arguments because it's,
1: it's <laughs> I comforting to I me <laughs> it's got, there's also one more uh and this is a, a fairly recent discovery in the last I um, few decades i mean it's not that mm-hmm. uh, um there is a, there is an ancient device called a uh, uh, learning device in astrology called our called the, um, uh, thema mundi. It's in an ancient, it's in a couple of old texts. It's a, it's a conceptual chart for the birth of the universe. And, mm-hmm. but that no, I mean, even in the ancient world, they didn't believe that it was literally the chart, <laughs> but yeah. they use it as a learning device. And, um, but that, that, um, chart actually explains a lot of the basic logic of astrology. And it also explains the sign rulerships. And because a lot of people think of sign rulerships as affinity, like, um, you know, Aries is aggressive. Thus Mars is aggressive. Well, that's, that's actually, mm-hmm. that logic has only existed since, since the 1970s. All right. Um, it's, it's actually more about, it's, it's an spectral relationship. So, um, you know, uh, Saturn is, is a malef- uh, the most malefic planet. Well, both of Saturn's signs are opposed um, the Sun and Moon signs. Um, you know, Jupiter is the lead, is the best planet, the nicest planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of its signs are in, in a trying aspect to the Sun and Moon's signs. So there's a yeah. it's a it's a relationship of those planets, um, you know, aspect wise to. Leo and cancer, uh, mm-hmm. not, not because, you know, Aries is like Mars or Capricorn is like Saturn. It's, it's a weird little shift in thinking you have to do. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Well, thank you. Really, really helpful. Thank you so much. Um, and of course it then makes sense. And you even mentioned it just a little while ago that when you are so deep into that field of uh, astrology that you and that type of astrology that you come not only across Agrippa, but you, that you delve into Agrippa and and go deep into his work, right? Or is that what happened with you before you thought uh, translating it? But how, how did you how did you come across Agrippa? What did he mean to you? How did he how did he come into your life, so to speak?
1: Um, well, I, I, learned about Agrippa from my old teacher mm-hmm. and, um, he, the, the, the one from Chicago the, the early one. They were right. Really? Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he, he was a strange, uh, Olorisha. So he was into uh, Western esoteric tradition. Mm-hmm. His, he, had a, he had an amazing library. Um, but he, he taught, he told me about Picatrix. Right. Uh, before I think anybody was talking about it, at least in the, Occult world. Um, mm-hmm. and we were talking, I don't know, early 90s, early to mid-90s. Um and um he didn't have a copy of it. He wasn't able to read it. Um, this is pre-internet, so sure. things were harder to find. You know. Yeah. Um so he he told me that this this book, three books of occult philosophy, uh, he said that book two is equivalent to the Picatrix. He didn't really know for sure. Of course, it's that's not really correct. But yeah, uh, but this idea of planetary magic. So w- when he died, um, I don't know, a little bug in my ear, you know, happened, <laughs> and I'm like, well, I need to learn about planetary magic?" Uh, I think, and so I'm like, "Oh, there's, I don't know, I don't have picket tricks, but I can get this three books, mm-hmm. and um, so I, so anyway, I bought it. It was the the Tyson edition, and I read right. it straight through, and um, and so that, that's, that clued me into a lot of things that, a there's a lot. Um, there's a lot happening with astrology that I wasn't aware of. Um, and, um, and then it just showed me there, there's, there's even little minor, not unimportant links, but it, there are certain things that reminded me of what I learned with Lukabee mm-hmm. even um, not, this is an official link or anything like that. I don't want people to go crazy. Um, but it reminded me of it cause I think certain things are kind of universal when it comes right. to magic. So, so, um, of course, well, astrology definitely. came later. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. So there you have that, there you have the three volumes. You said the, 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 Tyson edition that was the translation so far, right? That that was around
1: if I'm not completely wrong. It's not really a translation. No. Yeah. Tyson didn't translate it okay okay sorry uh, turner is the translation right
0: that's the fourth book okay so i'm not <laughs> uh, and, uh, i should it should have the book here in front of me because you you talk about that in the intro to to your translation that so far the the translation that was the only one available of the whole three books uh, um was by now you help me please
1: yeah so um Tyson is is was the most readable. Uh, he readable. was the
0: one. Okay. 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 <laughs> it, it, I, it was the
1: most um, I wasn't comparable. Yeah. then. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I made up a new word right then. <laughs> and um uh no so the trans, the only translation really before 2020 was um the J they, they call him JF. Uh, there's arguments on who JF is. So it's either John French or james freak Mm -hmm. leaning towards john french but we don't know for sure Mm -hmm. and so really before now all all english editions of agrippa of three books were that translation right usually modernized massaged a little bit annotated Mm -hmm. whatever but it was all that
0: yeah and now it's time for our usual break and of course for more music and You know what you're going to hear, I told you earlier, we are now going to hear music from that wonderful group from Corsica, which is called Tempus Fugit, and as I said, I will play now three tracks for you because um, they are really short tracks only one or two minutes long and three of them are going to be again three sacred songs from the 16th century sung in that extraordinary manner with an extraordinary technique of those five gentlemen by the name of the group called tempus fugit the three tracks you're going to hear now in this break are called velum templi Vexilla Regis and Christus Vincit, and um, so it's almost sort of Templars we should have used those songs. But anyway, it fits well with Agrippa, and uh, well after those three songs, we are returning to talk to Eric Perdue and uh, talk more about his translation of Agrippa, but also he has some good advice for you, uh, magicians and practitioners out there. So stay tuned. It's really interesting what he has to say. I like his cool and relaxed manner. It's, it's great to talk to him. And um, well, after the end of the interview, after part two of that interview, we're going to hear a last track by Tempus Fugit. And that last track is called Perdono, so Pardon. So once again, first we hear three tracks by the name of Velum Templi. Vexilla Regis and Christus Vincit then the second part of the interview and after that uh, last track from Tempus Fugit perdono and after that of course the announcement of next week's show so stay till the end for now the first track called Velum Templi e- e-
2: È za ogni Criste. E dei, Gesù magistre pax vi et salus perpèdua.
0: that um, huge task of translating uh, that work in, in a new version, in a new translation, uh, what kicked it off in you? I mean, you uh, is it just, so, okay, I'll start doing that. And after three years, you found out you have to finish it now. Otherwise, the three years were lost. Or or, <laughs> or, or did you really say, no, okay, this is going to be my next 10 years. I want to have this published in a new version. Or What, what happened? Why, why did you choose to do that?
1: Um, well, I, the first thing I tried to do is translate Picatrix. Okay. And I didn't really know as much about tra- astrology back then, which was a huge mistake. Um, but I, I was able to get through it, but I, I did the first three books and then I found out, uh, John Michael Greer and Christopher Warnock were doing theirs. Mm-hmm. And I was so uncertain about what I was doing. And with especially some of the botanical and animal names that I was just like, you know, I'm not going to just let them do it. <laughs> let them deal yeah. with it. I'll, I'll do something else. It's and, a very um, special field, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. It, and, and really Picatrix is not an easy book to translate anyway. I, I really, I don't know what I was thinking, but um, it showed, it showed me that I can do it. Uh, that, that was the importance of it. But mm-hmm. With uh, three books, I, I knew for a while that there were problems with the translation. Um, Christopher Warnock talked about it quite a bit. And there were a couple of passages that, um, that he knew that he would point out as examples. And with the passages that he was talking about, if you knew astrology, you could figure it out. And I'm like, okay, what would happen if we actually did one that was correct? You know, so I did the first, I think five chap, three or f- three to five chapters, I think, um, as a test, just to see what would happen for yourself. You Yeah, test for yourself how you. Felt yeah, with it. I didn't tell anybody. I was just doing it. Right, and it, it's turned out to be really smooth, and it just kind of, uh, I mean, not all the words. I, you know, I, I talked about this a lot. I mean, a lot of three books is actually quoted from other books, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but Agrippa has, I mean, he, he linked everything together, but he has a very smooth style about him. So he's a fairly easy, I think he's fairly easy to to get through. And, um, but I, I noticed, I think maybe in chapter, in the first chapter, I realized that sources needed to be looked at seriously. And then I think by chapter three, I noticed problems. Mm Mm-hmm like problems that no one else that really people didn't notice because the translation didn't look weird. (laughs) So, (laughs) and one of my favorite early ones was, I think it was on the chapter of earth where JF says um, that the earth is entirely changeable. Mm -hmm. Tyson makes this footnote saying, well, you know, Agrippa didn't really read his Plato correctly, um, it says here in Plato that the Earth is un, is unchangeable, and I look at the Latin and it's unchangeable. So in things like that, it looks like that the that Agrippa really made a mistake, and then you know mm-hmm. Tyson corrected it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so I, I noticed a lot of that kind of thing happening, and I realized that I needed to keep going. And after a while, I just I, just, I had to finish it. <laughs> After a it while. my weekly, <laughs> it was my weekly like uh, ritual. But it didn't really, it didn't really take me that long. It didn't take me ten years. Um, there were some publishing Ish. challenges that happened yeah. in that ten years. I but, think um, book, book one was book one was once published, wasn't it? Yeah, it's gotten confusing. So, Chris, I, I initially went through Christopher Warnock to publish him mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, he's, he's always been a really big cheerleader, um, for the book mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and very supportive of what I did. And so we did book one and I, I realized very quickly that, um, that I needed an editor and we all need editors. Sure. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> needed an editor though. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're too close to it and you can't, and you know, and, and Chris, you know, all due respects is not an editor. It's not his job. Sure. And um, so I I went to another publisher and that it just took too long. Yeah. Um, And unfortunately that one until recently was, it was available as pre-order. It wasn't really all their fault. It was also the distributor doing that. Mm. Um, So, so then it looked like that there were two editions out there. right? Right. And um, so luckily we had that cleared up. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was just this one. Um, but yeah, I went with inner traditions and, and it went, it just went like clockwork. Um, yeah. it took about a year at that point. It was. Yeah. Cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I hear that from, from several authors uh, and must also with me working with inner traditions is always a pleasure to be, I, I'm not getting paid by Jim for saying that. <laughs> but, <laughs> what, but, what was that? I, i'm not getting paid for uh by in tradition for saying this oh no it's always <laughs> nice to work with them but it is actually it really is and and oh, i mean crazy. it's also of course you need to be a big a big company to be able to to finance such a venture i mean it's it's three sure. three really nice books in a in in an edition that is it's worth it. I mean, you don't, you don't, it's not made on, on thin paper and which uh, you tear apart in the first, in the first uh, use, you know, it's, it's really, it's really well done, nicely printed, a nice, nice, a nice object also to have on your shelves. Not only.
1: I'll, I'll, I'll hasten to add though, really to me, what makes it is, is the editors I had. Mm. Um, my, the, the editor I worked with uh, primarily, you know, knew you know, some Latin, Mm -hmm. she was able to look at this and be like okay did Agrippa say this for real and it you know made me really I I had to retranslate some of it Mm -hmm. um uh, but there was that um the the managing editor uh knows Hebrew so Mm -hmm. she was able to (laughs) to find things there Uh, and then there was a uh, proofreader so there was there was three people going through this you know that's
0: good that's good well Uh, I mean It's almost, you would say, once in a lifetime occasion to not just for you, but for even for a publishing house, I think, to to do that work to do. It's it's a major achievement, actually, for for you in the first place, but also to have have it published and for the audience to have it available, because now, of course, um, uh, it's there and it can be used for the future. Yeah.
1: You think it would be easier to get it published, but it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly.
1: <laughs>
0: Tell us a bit about uh, um, now that you have known him so well um, about Agrippa himself um, as a as as an. Uh, As a magician or as a writer, as what was he for you in the first place? Was he a person who was important because he collected all that knowledge, or was he important because he dared at the time in the fifteenth sixteenth century, where it was not necessarily easy to do such a thing, to publish it? Or was he important because he created a lot of that stuff himself? What, what, what,
1: in your point of view, tell us a bit about him? So Agrippa was, I mean. to be very brief about it, was an academic. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And in in the in the Renaissance sense. Um and which meant he was also a doctor and he was a secret agent and had this kind of exciting life. Mm -hmm. But or may have been a secret agent, we don't really know because it's a secret. Like a certain Alice um (laughs) (laughs) but um but the thing is, what, what is notable, I think what drew me to it, is that there's really no book like it mm-hmm. uh, before or since. And if you don't know anything about, um, I guess, the state of, I, I, or I guess, magical text at that time mm-hmm. or, or, or any time, really, um, for someone to sit there and, and systematically lay out an argument from the the, the, the the barest bones to the most, you know, complicated in one in one book like that it, it just doesn't exist i mean he's the only one who really did that and there are there are people before him you know like facino who would mm-hmm. have their kind of worldview mm-hmm. um but agrippa just put everything together in one volume and, and you can you can get a, a sort of a survey of the history of at least you know medieval renaissance magic because that's all he knew or was, was available to him, mm-hmm. you know, in one volume. And, um, and, and just the fact that it's also rare for a book on magic to talk about why magic works. Uh, cause a lot of grimoires don't talk about that. They just tell, yeah. they give you the recipes. Yeah. Um, in modern books uh, on magic, they don't, they, they hardly ever define magic to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he, he starts, he starts, you know, being, what is magic, you know? Yeah, exactly. the yeah. you know, yeah. second, little second chapter, not the first chapter, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and so that, that stuck out. I mean, it, it's such a unique, um, a unique book and really the only, only thing close to its Picatrix. Absolutely. Well, what
0: always makes me think is I always think, how did he get away with it? You know, then back then, how, why was he not burned or whatever, or
1: at least silenced in some other way? You know. Well, there's a few things. I mean, a he had he knew the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, Agrippa, though, from what I can what I can gather from his life, he was one of those people. He, he strikes me as someone. I don't know for sure, but. He strikes me as one of those people who was very principled and, you know, really saw things as, well, this is the right thing to do. And could not understand when other people didn't agree with him. Mm-hmm. And we all know those people, and perhaps we are those people who just, who know, the right, what is right and what is wrong, very principled. And then you get in trouble for it, for, you know, voicing it or whatever. And that happened a lot in his life. He would do things that were objectively the right thing to do, but then it would, it would anger, you know, the clergy and then they would start. Yeah. He, had, he had at least, and I, I think three or four inquisitions um, started against him. And then, and then he would know the right people and they, he would, usually he would have to leave town. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he would, he was only put into, into prison uh, towards the end of his life because of debts, but not because of what he said. Right he must have been kind
0: of a prodigious child because if what i read about him he 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 left university with his degree uh, at age 16 right
1: yeah and i'm i'm not sure if that's normal though uh, maybe i don't know yeah because i don't think it's uh, the the comparison isn't the same as today i don't think no sure um, but 16 seems still dull yeah. Yeah. yeah it doesn't mean he was yeah uh. Yeah, he was finished. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was, he was definitely agile. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, I have to ask you that, Eric. I warned you about that, um, but um, and and you told me you have a very strong opinion that. Uh, please do 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 not hold back about that. Um, uh, of course, uh, most of us here who listen to this know that there is also that famous fourth book of occult philosophy. Um, I'm not saying by Agrippa because, uh, um, of course, that's all the discussion. What about that force book that is around and that can be bought, that is published, etc.? What, what about it?
1: The volume that we're familiar with is translated by uh, Robert Turner, mm-hmm. and um, so what where what it comes, where it comes from is from uh, Agrippa's Opera Omnia that came out after he died it's a collection of everything he wrote and um letters and everything and there is a fourth book in there but the fourth book is just the first section of the turner's of turner's fourth book so it's pretty small um and then the rest of the book are just other things that were in the oprah omnia um I th- if i rem- remember correctly in the oprah omnia he has the fourth book and then he has the Heptameron. Or no, yeah, uh, what? No, fourth book, heptameron. I think geomancy is in there somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, but then the other parts of the fourth book are like, are just other parts of the Oprah omnia. They're kind of scattered, and I originally was thinking of doing that, and then I started looking at this, and I'm thinking to myself, why did Turner pick all this, mm-hmm. like that combination of books, and I just kind of lost confidence in it right. as a text, not, not, not that. I think that the text is bogus, but because uh, words are words. But I lost confidence in like that combination of text being a volume. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, together, I just, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, and actually, Turner's tra- uh, translation is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, When when does it date from that, that that translation? I can't remember the year, but it's sixteen hundreds. It's roughly around the same time as the three books. Ah, okay, I think a little bit later if I'm not mistaken mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but yeah i i I may do it sometime, um, but it's just it isn't it isn't yelling at me so much, right. maybe it's a grip of spirit telling me that it's not really him, I don't know <laughs> yeah well yeah. It, it's it's it, it, I'm not saying it's a bad book, it's actually a good book and it's a very useful book um and very influential um I don't see the need as much, I guess, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, you just said uh, well, you, you, you knew I was going to ask you that probably, and um, how, how do you, you yourself, and how would you suggest that you're the ones who have that book now on their shelves? How do you ideally use that book, those three volumes? What What is there? Is it just important to have it because it's a kind of a classic or? What does it teach you? What does it give you as a practitioner in the twenty first century?
1: I think where it's valuable is that there are not there aren't many books, um, ancient or modern, that tell you how magic works, Mm -hmm. and it sounds really obvious that you should know that, but people don't really talk about it so much, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so the there's because okay so somebody I, I, and I can't remember who said this, but someone said that magic is really sort of is, is really a, an expression of a philosophy. Hmm. And philosophy is a little bit downgraded today as a, as a as a force. And I don't consider myself a great philosopher and I'm not necessarily an, uh, an expert in it by a long shot. But from doing, from translating this, I started to realize that there is a thought process that one needs to, that one should develop with magic. Uh, it isn't that, that you need to follow Agrippa though, necessarily, because Agrippa, you know, comes from a time when they believe that, um, that the, the, that the, the most ancient language was Hebrew and that, um, and that there were there were a, 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 some ancient prophets that paved the way for Jesus to come into you know, to come, and some of these ancient prophets were Moses, and perhaps Moses may have rubbed shoulders with um, Hermes Trismegistus. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, I mean that, that's the world that he lived in. But but the thing is, is that what's important is that is that we think about this sort of you know chain of being. And really, that's the the whole book is about the chain of being that right. Pacino talks about too and and how this really affects everything and, and how, how these things kind of link up. Why, why should spirits even talk to us to begin with? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why why bother? I mean, do, you know, is it is it enough just to demand that they speak to us? Why should they even listen? You know, these these are yeah. these are things we should all I think kind of answer to us answer for mm-hmm. ourselves. And um so I don't think literally that you have to I think I don't think that all forms of magic in the world require Astrology, for instance. Uh Leuka is one of them. We don't need astrology for it. Uh, Agrippa says that you can't do magic without astrology. Yeah. Um, so that's not literally literally true. We know that. Um, but there is there, you know, but what he's part of what he's saying in that case is, well, there's things like number, and then there's there's rationale, and there's um, again, you have that chain of being kind of aspect to the magic. So that that's in every form of magic in some form. So I think, I think that it's getting you in that frame of mind of, of understanding that it it isn't just us doing a ritual. And that's that Mm. Like magic is not about magical worldview is not just about doing magic. Right. Right. And, And some of the best things that you can learn about magic are not in magic books. Yeah you, know, you can learn these in many things. I mean Picatrix talks about this too. You can learn you can learn skills important to magic in books on philosophy, books on geometry, um Picatrix mentions warfare. <laughs> yeah. Um all sorts of things you can learn important skills for magic. I mean uh sewing, cooking, you know, all these things come into magical skill yeah. and so to sit there and just, and, and, you know, for people to fetishize these magical libraries as this, like, I don't know, as this sort of end all be all to, to magic is, it's only just a little tiny piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Um, and I, so I think, I think a grip is good for that. It's the most easily accessible way to sort of get that. I think I mean, Okay. Picatrix is out there too. Picatrix is a little bit more opaque. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. 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 Uh, then three books is. But there's, there's, there's one passage in Picatrix I always think about um, that's in the Arabic version, not the Latin version. And I'm paraphrasing very heavily here. But basically, it says that in order to learn magic, you have to embark on a course of study of all human knowledge. And then yeah. once you've embarked on this course of all human knowledge, you realize that magic actually laid, you know, was at the beginning of that journey so it's it's sort of at the beginning and the end it's it's there at the beginning but you can't understand it until you've actually gone through this whole you know journey right and i think that's kind of the moral to this whole story is that you're really learning magic not because of rituals and getting the exact right herb or the exact right you know stone all the time it's this whole like body of knowledge that you develop that's wisdom yeah yeah that that's what (laughs)
0: Ooh, I'm, I'm, I'm going far now by saying that, but that's probably what chaos magic in the 21st century is trying to say in a different way as well. But, um, yeah. uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I but think I you know, that's the thing about chaos magic. I mean, it's not, I don't really like chaos. I'm, I'm, not, no, chaos no, I mean, I'm not a chaos magician yeah. at all. I, I I'm just <laughs> trying to extrapolate a bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, you know, I, but I think at the, at, the, at the heart of it, chaos magic is doing what needs to be done. Right. And exactly. really that's, that's all magicians have ever done. But yeah. what, what we're missing right now in the, in the modern, in our modern era is that we're, we're raised, whether you like it or not, in a materialistic world and, uh, in a scientific worldview and that we're all most of us, at least we're educated in that system mm-hmm. and or in that worldview and so coming in as an adult doing magic or as a teenager doing magic you're working against this background of de- of doubt yeah and definitely not coming from a background of um spirits being real and having and 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 i mean all all of this i mean there's i think all of us when we do magic we in the back of our mind we kind of think to ourselves well this is this is probably bullshit Hmm. and the older we get the more experience we get that that sort of becomes quieter (laughs) as time goes on but we all go through that i think and so but agrippa didn't have that didn't live in that world agrippa lived in a world where spirits were objectively real astrology was objectively real the church didn't necessarily endorse astrology but they believed it was real yeah and they didn't believe they didn't endorse demonic you know magic but they they believed it was real yeah. And so this, this was not, they weren't coming from a place of doubt. They were coming from a place of defense. Uh, well, Agrippa's, Agrippa is <laughs> trying to make it work within that, that, that frame framework yeah. of the church. Yeah. Because it was real to the church. Then they had to uh, kind of push it back. It could have been dangerous to them because they right. believed it was real. Right? Hmm? Yep. Yeah. yeah. They don't want you to be too autonomous. Right. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a different worldview and, and, you know, I think that it's really it's very important for all magicians to not take for granted that words and ideas that we have today always existed mm-hmm. and that that there is a different approach that, that you have to take. And um, I, I learned I learned it through practicing leukemia because I was thrown into this world where um, not only was I see I mean, I was getting divinations that were objectively on target, mm-hmm. but I was seeing possessions of people telling me things that were object- objectively on target as well. Okay. And, um, and possessions aren't supposed to happen. Those are all supposed to be <laughs> psychological, but I was, I was seeing a lot of things that really re- should not have been happening. Right. And that, that helped out the doubt pretty quickly. Sure. But it's still there. I mean, even today I have to think about it sometimes. Yeah. And you ask yourself if it's you or if it's real, right? Right. Right. If it's real. Yeah. yeah. Right. But right. you know, it's, I don't know. I mean, when, when you have a, di- a divination tell you that you're going to get evicted and you're paying your rent, there's no reason to be evicted. And then you get evicted the next day. That's, that's something. It makes you think. <laughs> it makes you think. It <laughs> definitely. Definitely does. Um,
0: well, um, I wanted to mention something because uh, the word philosophy in the title of the book has always intrigued me from the very beginning when I first came across the work, which is ages ago. Um, And I only know another major magical book, and I wanted to mention that to you. I don't know if you know it, um, which is kind of important. It's a bit lost nowadays. But that was the Octoatic tradition books by uh, Melissa Denning and uh, I don't know what's his first name, Osborne Phillips, I think, Uh, and uh, the magic magical philosophy. It's called this. I think it's five volumes there in that. Case. and um there again we find a real uh, a whole holistic background that explains magic it's only in the fifth volume that they come finally down to to practice right, right. and uh, in a way in a way it reminds me I mean that is mid 20th century in a way it reminds me a bit of what Agrippa did there, but maybe I'm completely off track here. I don't know if you know about the Octagon tradition enough to, 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 to prove me wrong or right, but
1: uh. I don't actually, I'm not, I'm not terribly familiar with that, but um, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like they were trying to come up with that holistic yeah. worldview, which is important. And I, I think Definitely. I always admire when people try to do that. Mm. Yeah. And the, the, the philosophy is a scary word today because I think that we tend to look at it as, you know, a lot of navel gazing. And Did he die? I, I think that I think that um, where it becomes important, because really the, the, the purpose of philosophy is to, is to teach you how to think. Yeah. And, you know, like some some people I've kind of, I don't know, downgraded Socrates and Plato today, but, but when you think about the Socratic approach is when you, when you actually read it, whether you agree with him or not, it's that, that, that inquiry that he's doing. And we, have, and as magicians, we need to learn how to do that. Absolutely, So I think it's less important that we uh, become a Neoplatonist or become an Aristotelian or become a Stoic. Those things really are, I don't think are important. Mm-hmm. Um, what is important is, is that you as an individual should be able to, um, uh, explain your worldview and explain how this works and explain what you're doing. Um, well, you know, I, I think an obvious example is, um, and I'm not going to have the answer by the way, <laughs> but a good example is, okay, we're doing something like astrology. Um, there are many reasons why astrology may or may not work. <laughs> whatever. So it could be magnetism, light, spirits, whatever. Um, if we do, uh, I, I do my Afro Cuban divination, I can tell you how that works. You know, it's because of a spiritual connection, basically. Uh, but then you think about things like tarot cards, because you're using, um, you know, these cards printed out at a printer by game companies. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that work? And some people have answers for that. Some people don't. Um, but I think that that line of thinking is because you know because I mean, I'm I'm picking on tarot because tarot is not necessarily part of um, a particular tradition, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it sort of came out on its on its, as its own sort of thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, being able to answer like how does tarot work? Is it okay if it's spirits? Then what spirits? <laughs> um. And I, I have my own personal ideas, but, uh, but I, I think it's important for people to, to understand that, um, you know, as opposed to just being, doing the default psychological answer that it's, oh, it's, yeah. you know, playing with the subconscious or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need even more, a little bit more creative than that. Yeah. Maybe philosophy as a, as
0: a, as a study has also become in the same way you just said earlier about other things too scientific nowadays and teaches you more about the background and the past and rather become your own thinking individual right
1: yeah at the end i think at the end of the day the spirit of philosophy is to teach you how to think think. yes exactly really exactly i I don't think plato really expected there to be like a um i don't have followers necessarily (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know what he thought, but, yeah. um, but yeah, I, and, and with Agrippa, I think it's the same thing. I mean, he's, 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 you know, just quoting other people. Um, and, and he strung those, those quotes together to make his own arguments. Um, but you know, in the end he's, he's, he's explaining, um, he's trying to explain to Renaissance people, you know, how, how magic is really not the scary demonic thing necessarily. I mean, it can be, um, but there's a safe way to do it in the church. And, you know, to us today, we may not have those hangups, mm. um, but it's still important to see how, how he did it because it's still valid today. I mean, maybe it's not the church. Maybe it's just to ourselves. Maybe it's, you know, maybe we need to figure out in this uh, materialistic scientific world, how, how it could still be valid. I mean, we, I, those are all things we should answer. Absolutely. how would you how
0: would you counsel a young person starting who is eighteen let's say somebody comes to you like you did in the time back then to that gentleman in Chicago with 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 the books that he or she read and and and, and asks you advice of how to how to approach the path of magic um in 2022 what what would be your advice
1: oh boy um i would probably start with i think a daily practice helps because you have to see something works i would start there i is, even though I train, even though I, I, I write, <laughs> um, I don't like throwing books at people as a first thing. Huh. Um, I think one of the mis- this, and, and this is going to sound funny considering we're talking about a book. <laughs> um, is that the occult becomes book fetishizing a little bit too much. Definitely. I, I agree. And it's it's kind of a mis you know, I I used to see all this endless talk about what books to buy and everything. I I I definitely recommend Agrippa, but uh, <laughs> not because I not not just because I, I translated it, but I, I recommend mm. it for to anybody, um, if they can get you know, if they can read it to get through it. Um because it gets you in that frame of mind. But it but really when it comes down to like starting on magic, it's experiential. Mm. And the books help get you to that point. Right. But I mean, it's like, like you can't read cookbooks all day. No, sure. Thank you. You're a know, Yeah. And I, I don't believe in this whole armchair magician versus non armchair armchair magician, because we're both, all of us are both. Yeah, definitely. Uh, no, I
0: agree on on the book <laughs> fetishism that is around them. Uh, well, yeah, well, it's just we are all a bit subject to that ourselves because they are so. We are all book fetishists in a certain way. The object is also always temptation, isn't it? Yes.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I you know I I you know I have people that I've helped get started. I mean, you know, especially through leukemia. Leukemia is is fiercely non book related. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's very oral but but you you know to someone starting out you just can't go through you know this this um you can't you can't just sit there and expect a beginner to read Agrippa knowing nothing no, you know, sure. and then have them get excited about magic no no yeah you're right um or or any book like that mm. and um but so you know they have they have to do something and uh so there, i i always that when people start out they should just do some kind of a a daily practice in my mind and for for me it's ancestral Mm. you do it you do an ancestral practice right Um, because i think that that's the root of everything really well um and you you know learning that you know magic isn't about doing ritual after ritual after ritual yeah i mean magic is really about the space between the rituals that that's a wonderful final
0: uh final word space between rituals that's, that's a, i love that one i love that one that's the tech
1: will that be the title of your next book eric? yeah there you go okay i, I want to do three books of occult christmas <laughs>
0: <laughs> well eric thank you so much for really a really lovely 68 minutes in your company uh, i think we covered a lot of ground and and uh um, in a very calm and um, wonderful way. Thank you for that. And um, all the best to you, to your future projects. And, and well, thank um, you. Um, I hope we'll, we'll meet again at some point. And I'm well, sure we will. <laughs> I mean, we all meet again at some point, don't we? Next time I'm in Germany, which hasn't happened yet oh well you, i am in austria but it's quite close so. austria sorry yes yes so please let me know <laughs> you know we are very it's like the canadians who don't like to be taken for americans it's the same the same difference i don't blame them <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> um thanks eric and have a good remainder of the day thank you <laughs> Oh, no, last of those six tracks we heard today by Tempus Fugit, that wonderful group of five male voices that had caused sensation at the 2002, the 2002 Calvi Festival of Polyphony in Corsica. They have this unusual vocal technique and an innovative repertoire, even though it's from the 16th century, but it's very rare songs. And... Um, it's harmonized in a may- way that's really amazing. The names of those five guys is Benoit Fleury, Eric Natali, Hervé Muglioni, Patrick Vignoli and Paul Giuntini. So that's the five gentlemen that compose Tempus Fugit. Thank you guys. And thanks to Eric Perdue. Eric, thank you so much for a highly interesting talk here today on the Thought Service podcast. And um, uh, thanks also for the good advice that you had for especially beginning practitioners uh, as we talked about that towards the end of the interview. And with that, we come also to the end of the whole episode of this show of episode number five of season eight. And it was lovely to have you with me here today again. And I hope you're going to be returning in a week for our new show, which will be Episode 6. And on Episode 6, I have a guest that you have heard twice on this show but in very short uh, appearances on uh, exlibris episodes if you remember those way back when we did exlibris shows and um, well this time chris Giudice, who is my guest he has just released a new book of his a uh, book on italian occultism a uh, very special personality of the italian occultism of the 19th and 20th centuries um, and um, uh, I'm looking forward to present you that talk with Chris Studice and to uh, talk a little bit on European matters once again, like today, actually. and um, But there's also some chapter of occult history that has been rarely talked about. So it will be interesting to hear Chris on that and also to get his book. And, uh, well, that was the show here today. You got everything that I had to tell you. And, um, well, do stay safe and healthy for the remainder of this coming week. And um, come back next Sunday for a new episode with Chris J. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.